We turn in God's Word this evening to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We'll be reading the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 9 tonight. Let us hear then God's breathed out word to us. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Thus far, the word of God. Let's bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, It is indeed good for us to come into the house of the Lord to worship you, to escape, if you will, the outside world, to leave it behind, to keep it out, to concentrate on you, to focus our energy, our love, and our devotion to you, to rebuild our determination and our knowledge so that we can go out into the world and proclaim your good news to the world. Lord, we pray that you will give Pastor Bob the words to speak, the wisdom, the clarity of mind. And Lord, may those words sit on our heart, soften our hearts, make them soft as uh, worked up ground so that they will take root and they will germinate, grow, and produce the fruit that you want us to do. We ask these things not because we're worthy, but we ask them in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. As we consider this passage this evening, uh, three main points for us to consider. First of all, the place of the transfiguration. Secondly, the realities of the transfiguration. And then thirdly, to pose three 
purposes of the transfiguration, although we probably could do many more than three. But we'll look at at least three of them tonight. First of all, then, the place of the transfiguration. Although our text does not specifically say it, I can with some pretty good confidence tell you that we are still in the northern area. And I say that because Mark has been rather consistent in telling us that if we leave a particular area, if we journey somewhere else, Mark has been very consistent in his gospel to tell us that. So if he goes to Gennesaret, we hear that. If, we, if he goes to Capernaum, we hear that. If he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, we hear that. If he goes to the Decapolis, we hear that. The last thing we heard was that Jesus was heading north to Caesarea Philippi. There has been nothing that has occurred since that geographical designation to turn us from that area. So we, we are on pretty good standing by saying, since Mark doesn't tell us in this occasion, we have to stay where we are, which is in the northern part, the way northern part. The second thing we are told about where this takes place then is the fact that they are up on a high mountain. It is stressed in each one of the gospel accounts. It is a high mountain. Now, for those of us who live in Michigan, any mountain is high, but it is to designate the fact that unlike some mountain peaks around the area where the Jews living in Israel could readily see, this one stands out. This is a high mountain. Now, there is such a mountain in the far north of Israel, we call it by name Mount Hermon. It had that name already in Scripture. It is a mountain peak of about 9,000 feet. It stays snow-capped most of the year, if not all of it, depending on the climate change that it has to deal with. It's, it's about 10,000 feet above the valley of the Jordan. So it stands out quite ominously. And you can see from the various localities, even today, almost over all of Israel. So did the transfiguration happen on Hermon? We're not told that. We're simply told it's a high mountain in the north. That narrows it down. It most likely is, but because we're specifically not told it, we have to leave it out. Even though the Jews knew the name of this, if it was Mount Hermon, Matthew knew the name, Mark would have known the name through Peter, Luke would have known the name of this mountain peak. So why isn't it named? Why aren't we told? We're told sometimes that so-and-so, for example, Elijah goes on Mount Carmel, Moses is on Mount Nebo, why not here? Maybe it's because Jesus, through the Spirit, already knew our tendency to set up shrines and places uh, and to make too much of the place. So maybe it's left out for that reason. We don't know. But we are told it is a high mountain. And it would appear that they climbed a significant ways. 
But we are also told, not here in Mark, but we are told in Luke, there is a reason that they are climbing the mountain. And the reason is to pray. Jesus takes with him these three disciples, as he will on another occasion, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, taking these three disciples with him to spend time communicating with the Father. And it is during this time of prayer that the transfiguration occurs. Some of the Gospels include the fact that the disciples were a little heavy with sleep. Perhaps it was the long climb. Perhaps it's the lack of uh, oxygen. Perhaps as they were in the Garden of Gethsemane where there is really no excuse. They're just simply tired or distracted. Jesus is praying. This is why he has gone there. He has gone up on this mountain and separated himself from all the people who have been following, separating himself even from the other disciples in order that he and they can engage in a season of prayer with the Father. Then we read. And he was transfigured before them. Something happens up on this mountain. Something takes place. We use the English word transfigured to describe it. But as we look of the information that Mark gives us, two things stand out. One, Mark calls our attention to his clothing. That the clothing of Jesus was changed. It wasn't what he was wearing previously. It was changed. The clothing is now described as radiant. The clothing is described as intensely white. Some of the texts, some of the versions use the term, it was dazzling white. That word dazzling means with it and carries with it the idea of glittering. There is not only an intense shine, but it's like its intensity continues to glitter. Some of you are in prom season, and most likely you have purchased, if you're a female, purchased a dress that perhaps uh, you hope do, does some glittering as well. Well, I can tell you it was nothing like this. This was so radiant. This was so dazzling. that the disciples used the term, you can't make it whiter than what its appearance was. A purity of light. The second thing that Mark calls attention to is his face. Okay, Excuse me, that, that, that's in the Luke passage, sorry. He calls attention to the, to the face. Matthew records it this way. It shone like the sun. But just imagine that, okay? That the face of Jesus, not just his clothing, but the face of Jesus shines like the sun. Imagine when we live here on days when we actually see the sun, 
and it's a bright day, okay? We're, we're wearing sunglasses because it's, it's so bright to us. There they are on this mountain, probably in all the purity of clarity of air that you can find. They've been climbing this mountain. We are told that in this northern section of, of Israel, there are relatively any days of cloudiness. The sun shines in his face, Matthew says. It's like that sun. There has been a change in Jesus. The actual word that we have here in English is transfigured. In the Greek, the actual word is metamorphosed. There is a change of form in keeping with the reality of the being. Our Kent Hughes in his commentary says the following. The veil of his humanity is lifted. And the true essence was allowed to shine through. That's in keeping, you see, with the, the word that is used here in Greek. The true essence of Christ, the reality of Christ, the reality of who he is, makes this appearance on this mountain in the dazzling whiteness, in a face shining like the sun. He has changed that which veiled him, this earthly body, gives way to the true glory of who the Son is. The reminder here is of the Shekinah glory of God, a Shekinah glory of God that that we first meet in Exodus 13, 21, that preceded the Israelites, that was that pillar of light, that Shekinah glory of God that as the tabernacle is dedicated, takes residence within. And oh, how that so pictures what is happening here. One would never know to look at that tent in the wilderness. One would never comprehend that inside of that tent, was the glory of God in all of its beauty, in all of its majesty, in all of its purity. God was dwelling there between the cherubim in his full glory. But it's covered. You see, it's covered with all of these tarps. It's covered with these seal skins on the outside. It appears as nothing. Isaiah 53, he had... Nothing about him that we should be drawn to him. To look at Christ outwardly, one would think, what's he all about? Why is he such an attraction? There is nothing about him that we should be drawn to him. Yet, at this moment, at this point of history, up on this high mountain in northern Israel, comes out the true essence of, of the glory of Christ. John will write later in John chapter 1 verse 14. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only. Yes, John, he was there. He saw 
as he's describing in John chapter 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, he says, we have seen his glory. We have seen the Shekinah glory of God, the glory of the Christ. We have put our eyes upon it. We are witnesses to who he truly is. His appearance. Secondly, there appears with him two others. Verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Moses, who had lived some 1,400 years before this. Elijah, who had lived approximately 900 years before this. Both of these two men had had mountaintop experiences with the Lord. Moses on Mount Nebo and Mount Sinai. Both. Elijah at Mount Carmel and at Mount Horeb. Both had been in the presence of God. Is that why they make their appearance here? Perhaps the reason. Some believe that Moses, as we would well attest to, represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. A reminder of Jesus' words, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. When we speak about the two commandments, we speak about the fact that this is about the law and the prophets. This is how the Old Testament is summarized to the Jewish person. It is the law and the prophets. This is what the scriptures contain. That perhaps is the reason. To speculate any farther would just be that speculation. All we can test to is the fact they were there. They made an appearance. How? We do not understand. How could these two men who have long since passed be there? We don't know. Some would argue, well, Elijah never died. He was taken up in the chariot, right? Okay, but that doesn't explain Moses because the word very clearly tells us and Moses died and God buried him. So that can't be the reason both of them are there. So to go on is just speculation. But they were there. That's the reality. And in some way, Peter, James, and John understood exactly who these two men were. But what's interesting is there is a conversation going on. The conversation that Luke 9, or that Luke reports in chapter 9, is about his departure. They're talking about his dying. They're talking about his suffering. They're talking about that which is coming. They're talking about that which lies ahead. See, this is the connector point, is it not, to where we were last week. What did Jesus say about the Christ? But that he was going to suffer. He was going to be rejected. And that anyone who follows him is what? Going to have to bear their own cross and follow him. This is where we left it last week. Where are we now? Jesus up on a high mountain being transfigured before them in the presence of Moses and Elijah. Talking about what? His death. His departure. That which is to come. What a conversation. Think of all that must have been talked about. Oh, we get a hint of that, don't we? 
on that evening of the resurrection when Jesus is walking with those two men on the road to Emmaus and he opened up the word and starting with Moses and the prophets, he showed them, he showed them from the word what the Christ must suffer, but the reality of who the Christ was. And perhaps this is the discussion that's going on. They're talking about his death. But there is something else as well. There is a voice. A voice that speaks. Oh, we have the little thing with Peter, trying to make three tents, and one still wonders what was in Peter's mind in regards to all of that, but... I think at best we would say Peter was seeking to do some sort of religious activity that would seek to honor these three men. But in typical Peter fashion, Peter is trying to take that which is meant for the spiritual and the eternal and bring it down to the here and now. I just want to keep this moment. I just want to keep this time. Do we ever have to go back down the mountain? And the reality is, yes, you need to go back down the mountain. Peter. Perhaps this is why the voice speaks. This is my son. Listen to him. Similar to the voice that we hear from the Father at Jesus' baptism. A voice that reminds us of a father speaking. And it's not going to be heard this coming week. Here, this is my son. Listen to him. But as Jesus travels to the cross, and all of that agony, and all of that pain, and all of that separation, there is no voice from heaven There is only silence of the Father. But a voice that speaks of his Son. This is my beloved Son. This is the passion and compassion and love of the Father for the Son. This is one of those mysteries we deal with within the Trinity, how this works and how this fashion. But I think we get a pretty good insight here in the fact that these are not just some little specks on some sort of triangle and there's some sort of theological distinction we make before them. There is real emotion that exists between the members of the Trinity. The Father, thinking about that which is coming. This is my beloved Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. This is my beloved Son.
And then as quickly as this all began, it ends. Verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Not a transfigured Jesus, the same Jesus they had walked up the mountain with. Suddenly, it's all done. It's all over. Gives you the idea as quick as it started, it ended. So we have to step back from this now and ask, so what's the purpose? Why does this event take place in the life of Jesus? In the life of the disciples? In our lives? Why does God give us this passage of Scripture? Let me lay before you at least three things. One, because of the context of Jesus' teaching. He has been talking about the humiliation that is coming, his suffering, his death. I mentioned that a few moments ago. That's the context. This is what is now on Jesus' mind. Remember, as I, I said to you, that there is a change that's happening when we come to that verse 27 of chapter 8. And the change is, we've presented the Christ. But now it's the suffering Christ. And we can say what we want about him being God at the same time, but there is no doubt that by the time we come to Gethsemane, this is weighing heavily upon him. We should never think that this road of the cross was some sort of, oh yeah, this, I'll take that. I'll do that. I'm I'm the son of God. I'm Christ. Of course I can do that. Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. As Jesus now begins with his disciples to speak plainly about that which he knows is coming, the cross, this happens. This happens. This is the reality, my son, of who you are. You have come, but I have not forgotten that you are my son, you are the Christ. You have the glory of God. Perhaps it's meant for the disciples. It's a reminder to them. What has he been talking about? He's suffering and dying. But what did we just see? Perhaps it's not meant so much for them at that moment as it was for later. Because did you notice what happens? Jesus said, no, don't talk about this now, guys. Now is the, not the time to talk about what you've seen. Why? Because they don't get it. They won't understand it. Now is not the time. But there would come a time, there would come the opportunity in which this resurrected Christ would be lifted up and glorified and we would hear again those words of John, we have seen with our own eyes the glory of God. 
There was going to be a time, but now is not it. There will be a time for them to remember that the suffering Christ is the glorified Christ. For now, it's too much for them to, to handle, too much for them to contain. Be quiet. Don't talk about anybody. And what's, what's interesting is it seems to be the one time they actually listen. Because we don't hear the disciples coming down and, you know, Peter going over to Matthew and saying, hey, you should hear about the experience we had up on the mountain. Boy, we're, we're the three of us. We're really, they're silent. They're quiet. Oh, they have questions about Elijah. That's what brings this all back at the end, right? They, they, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? They're trying to put the pieces together and Jesus says to them plainly, he has come. And he's not referring to this Elijah here in the transfiguration. He's referring to John the Baptist. He's already come. The Christ, men, is in your presence. So it's the context of the teaching that brings us to this moment, at least in Mark. Secondly, it's in the words of the Father. If you want to boil the transfiguration down, one way to do it is to simply hear what God the Father himself says. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What two things come out to us there? One, that Jesus is divine. And two, that Jesus has authority. He is the one to be listened to. Why? Because he is the Christ. He is the one who is divine. He is the one who is the Savior. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But I am the good shepherd. The Father, listen to him. Listen to Christ. Words not spoken only for three disciples, but words spoken for you and I as well. A reminder to us that we're to be those who listen to Christ. He leads us with his rod and his staff. The staff re represented the counsel and the compassion. Jesus said that when he left, he would give us a gift, the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the Consular, the staff. But he also gives us the gift of the rod, his word. Listen to him. Listen to that rod as it wings and whips through the air and hits you in the side and says, stay away from that plant. That rod that is used by the good shepherd to club the devil. What does Jesus use in those temptations? But the word of God. The rod. Thirdly, a third one, is because of the realities of our life. We, like the disciples, are often confused. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. 
We struggle with health issues. We struggle with emotional issues. We struggle with spiritual issues in the realities of life. Because that's where this is occurring. This is occurring in the reality of life. In the reality of life, they're living life. They're climbing a mountain. They're up on the mountain praying. In the reality of life, take up your cross and follow me. In the reality of life, get thee behind me, Satan. In the reality of life that you and I live, our own realities, there is the Son of God. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Matthew 17, verses 6 and 7. Rise and have no fear. And why would we? We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. We're guarded. We're loved. We're protected. He lays down his life for us. The Son of God. That's some human Messiah. Not some vote-getter. A transfigured Christ who is the one who is present with us in the realities of life. So as the Israelites are journeying through the wilderness, what happens? The reality of life is that the glory of God is with them every step of their journey. As the temple is erected, what happens? The glory of God fills the temple so that in the reality of their everyday life, Christ, the reality of Christ, is with us. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Let me ask you a question. Is that enough? Is it enough to see Jesus only? I think that's why we're given this. Oh, I'm told about the transfiguration. I believe the transfiguration, the reality of the transfiguration, the glory of that tra transfiguration. But Jesus only is enough. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus only is enough. For this poor wretched sinner. Tony Campolo in one of the messages he gave at one time reiterates the story of an old pastor who rises on a Good Friday service with one line. His sermon had but one line that he repeated over and over and over and over again. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen? Amen. Father, the reality is the disciples have a Jesus who has spoken of his death.
But the real reality is the resurrection is coming. Sundays are coming. Lord, that's true in each one of our lives. Here now, we deal with the realities. And even in those realities, Jesus alone is enough. But the true reality is this. Someday, we shall see that which Peter, James, and John saw. We shall no longer see in a mere dimly, but we shall see face to face and behold the wonder of grace. Thank you for this word that you have given to us today. In Christ Jesus' name alone do we pray. God's people saying, Amen.